Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Law School Lounge podcast. This is a Carolina Academic Press production where we discuss everything law school. The Law School Lounge is a place for students and faculty alike to discuss law school and the law. We hope you'll hang out with us for a while. everybody and welcome to this episode of the Law School Lounge where we are focusing on transactional skills. Transactional skills are those skills used by transactional attorneys as they navigate contracts, negotiations, and anything that might come up in the world of business law and corporations. With me for this episode is Peter Sevigia. He is a Carolina Academic Press author and an attorney who has been practicing in this area for many years. And you can sense that throughout our discussion while he gives examples and a lot of real-life experiences related to transactional lawyering and negotiation that really paint a picture of what it's like to be a transactional attorney. Not only does Peter speak of his own experiences throughout his practice, but he also gives an acronym that's really helpful to remember as you're working through a negotiation, on top of many tips related to grammar that are really important to remember if you're the one drafting the contract. His perspective on contracts alone is really unique and helpful in a practical sense, and so you'll walk away from this episode with a lot of insights into this type of practice. And now you may be thinking, why is that, Crystal? Why do you think this is such an important topic? And mainly it's because I want law students to know that transactional lawyering is an option. And if it's something that you are interested in, I want you to know more about it from somebody who's been out there and seen a lot of things and practiced in the area. As I mentioned earlier, Peter is a Carolina Academic Press author, Two of his most recent titles with us are Transactional Skills, Contract Preparation and Negotiating, What to Do and What Not to Do. You'll hear us refer to that book throughout this episode, and you can get that on Carolina Academic Press's website or Amazon. And if you're looking for more exercise-based titles, Peter also authors Exercises in Commercial Transactions with us, which is now in its second edition. So without further ado, here's my discussion with Peter Sevilla. Happy listening. So Peter, you've written this book, Transactional Skills, Contract Preparation and Negotiating. Before we dive into the tips and full experience of transactional attorneys, can you please tell us what it actually means to be a transactional lawyer and describe the difference between a transactional lawyer and a litigating attorney? I think that a lot of law students and new attorneys go into the profession with only litigation in mind, and the context here on transactional lawyering will be particularly helpful. Uh, Well, Crystal, uh, transactional lawyers are in essence, the architects and engineers of business transactions. These transactions arise in two contexts. The first is business relationships, 
such as partnerships or arrangements among shareholders of privately held companies or employment arrangements. The second deals with such transactions as the purchase of a business or the license of intellectual property or an option to buy real estate. The transactional attorney initially has four functions. The first is to understand the deal. The second is to identify the various considerations involved in the transaction, such as a non-compete restriction in an employment contract following termination of employment. The lawyer's third function is to determine how to treat each of those considerations. In the case of non-compete provisions, the activities restricted and the period and geographical area of the restriction. And finally, the lawyer must draft the contract that embodies the various considerations involved in the transaction. Another example that is not guided by formal legal requirements, such as non-compete restrictions, is a standard boilerplate clause prohibiting a party from transferring its rights under an agreement. Fair enough, as parties to a contract generally want a control with whom they are dealing. An absolute prohibition is appropriate in a license agreement because the licensor derives its income from licensing its intellectual property, such as data. The licensor therefore does not want to allow the licensee to transfer the licensee's rights to that intellectual property to someone else, thereby depriving the licensor of another license fee. Mm -hmm. As an added precaution, the licensor should consider adding a provision to the standard clause that a change in control or a merger or consolidation, regardless of the surviving entity, will constitute a transfer. In some jurisdictions, like Texas, a merger may not be considered a transfer. Further, specifying regardless of the surviving entity is essential to protect against the acquiring companies merging into the licensee. On the other hand, consider an absolute prohibition on transfer in a contract for the lease of equipment. That clause could interfere with an acquisition of the lessee. So in this case, the lessee should probably require a provision that permits the acquisition of all or substantially all of the lessee's business and assets, as long as the successor assumes all of the lessee's obligations under the lease. Now, there is a mighty difference between the transactional lawyer and the litigant. The object in litigation is to win, to beat the other side. Litigation is a confrontational sport. True. <laughs> now, Although there is an adversarial aspect to any business deal, confrontation should not become part of the search to conclude the deal. The most important part in negotiating any deal is resolving differences, that is, finding solutions. Each party is not trying to beat the other. When a business deal succeeds, both parties are winners. That's why I advise litigators in settlement talks to park their guns at the door. Don't litigate the case in the conference room. Instead, 
seek a mutually acceptable compromise. So you mentioned that the fourth function of a transactional attorney is to draft up the contract. I know that you have an idea that differs from most on what a contract is. Can you explain that idea and what it takes to write a good contract, please? Sure. Most people would describe a contract as an enforceable agreement between or among two or more parties. Sure. I know that that's how I would define a contract, and it tends to be the main definition taught and memorized in what would be a standard contracts law course. Right. But a shift in perspective here can benefit a transactional lawyer. That is, the lawyer dealing with contracts on a regular basis. I'd like people to think of a contract as simply a set of instructions governing a business relationship, such as employment arrangements, or a deal, such as the purchase of a business. Now, if the contract is simply a set of instructions, the prime directive in writing any contract is the same as it is for any instruction. Accuracy stated as simply as possible. I purposely avoid the word clarity because an instruction can be clear, but it also can be wrong. For example, Kristen, you ask me, where is the ladies' room? And I reply, go out the door directly ahead of you. Turn right, and it's the first door on your right. Clear? Yes, but wrong. The first door on the right happens to be the men's room. Accuracy, stated as simply as possible, produces clarity. Okay, but this sounds a little bit like it might be easier said than done right off the bat for newer people. So do you have any advice on how to achieve this prime directive you've just mentioned? Transactional skills deals extensively with implementing the prime directive, but I can give you a few suggestions here. It helps to know grammar. The author Stephen King said that bad grammar produces bad sentences. And in the case of contract preparation, bad sentences are the fabric from which litigators style their suits. Let me give you an example from an actual lawsuit. An employee quit her employment, claiming severance payments. The company contested her claim, asserting that she was not entitled to the payments because she left voluntarily. The employee's contract provided that she was entitled to severance payments. And here I am quoting from the contract on termination of her employment by the company. Again, on termination of her employment by the company. The employee read by the company that prepositional phrase as modifying the word employment. The company, on the other hand, argued that the phrase by the company modified the word termination. That is, she was entitled to severance only on termination by the company of her employment. Grammatically, the employee had the better argument because a prepositional phrase, as does an adjective clause, generally modifies the noun to which it is closer. From the employee's point of view, the text should have read on termination of her employment with the company. From the company's perspective, it should have read on termination by the company of her employment. 
nitpicking perhaps, but someone's money flowed on the turn of the nit. Place that prepositional phrase and the adjective clause next to the noun that it modifies. Here's an example that I myself wrote and corrected when I realized the ambiguity after setting the document aside and reading it aloud. Never include a provision in a contract which you don't understand. The corrected version, never include in a contract a provision which you don't understand. Better yet, rewrite the sentence, eliminating the clause. Never include a provision in a contract if you don't understand the provision. Sound silly? Here's a comment on that mandate in a letter I received from a fine trial lawyer, Stephen Jenkins, who practices in Wilmington, Delaware. Mr. Jenkins wrote, and I'm quoting, I have been shocked by the number of times in litigation that I've asked more senior lawyers, including some fairly good lawyers, to explain the meaning of some provision in a document they prepared and found out they had no idea what it meant. Indeed, I have just finished litigating such a case. The litigation did no one any good and would not have happened but for some sloppy drafting. So you bring up a lot of really great points here, Peter, and I have to say that I taught legal writing in the past, and I always make it a point to emphasize that word order and grammar matter, even in documents you feel may never see the inside of a courtroom. Habits are formed, both bad and good alike, the more you do something. You want to form good word choice and grammatical habits, and that means crafting grammatically correct and substantively accurate sentences in every document you write. I know many students struggle with legal writing or they go through their courses under this impression that legal writing isn't really that important, but whether you're the one writing a document, the transactional lawyer, or the one litigating the document, right, the litigator, your ability to write and navigate a written document is an important skill all lawyers need to master. Yeah, that's, that's absolutely right and excellent advice. Even punctuation is important. A case can even turn on punctuation. Here's an example where the absence of a comma meant $5 million. But first, to illustrate the point, consider the following sentence, with and without the comma after the word eat. Here's the sentence. It's time to eat, children. Without that comma following the word eat, the kitties are on the menu. Now, let's consider that example with a $5 million price tag. A statute in Maine provided that truck drivers were entitled to overtime pay unless certain exclusions applied. One of those exclusions was for, and I'm quoting here, packing for shipment or, no comma, packing for shipment or distribution of certain food products. The court was asked whether the word distribution was a second object of the preposition for, that is, packing for distribution, or whether distribution was a separate, independent function, not tied to packing, thus excluding it from overtime pay. The court held for the truckers because there was no comma following the words packing for shipment. Without that comma, 
distribution was a second object of the preposition for, and so not a separate independent function. $5 million for the trucker. Another discipline essential to preparing a good contract is a rule that my wife, the English teacher, impresses on our students. And it's one that every transactional lawyer, anyone who writes a contract, should follow. Read the document aloud and set the document aside, preferably overnight. A rule that resulted in my correcting the incorrect placement of that clause that I mentioned earlier. Reading the text aloud often reveals flaws that hide in silence. And putting the document aside, preferably overnight, results in your reading what you wrote more objectively as if someone else had written it. I first have to say that I am a big Oxford comma fan. I'm always telling my students that they need to remember the difference between including that comma and not. So I'm really glad that you told that story. And please also allow me a quick moment to quote one of my favorite lines from your book on this point. What the lawyer must do, therefore, is examine the document as if someone whom the lawyer hates had written it, and as if the finest litigator on the planet were going to review it from an adversarial point of view. Such a great line. <laughs> Thanks, Crystal. Another way to emphasize the importance of that rule is the aphorism. Two certainties in life, death and taxes. Well, it's time to add a third. Mistakes. According to legend, only Mozart got it right on the first try. You know, Crystal, all these examples illustrate that one of the most difficult challenges to master, even more difficult than hitting the breaking pitch in baseball, is writing a sentence that means the same thing to everyone who reads it and also means what the writer intends it to mean. In essence, the job of the transactional lawyer is to put commercial litigators on the endangered species list. Great analogies, Peter. I actually used to be a pitcher myself in softball, so I especially appreciate the baseball reference. Do you think writing contracts differs from other forms of writing? Oh, yes, indeed. Traditionally, there are two forms of writing. Creative writing, such as novels, plays, and poetry that entertain and often contain a message. And expository writing, such as essays, legal memoranda and briefs, and histories that convey information or try to persuade. A contract does not entertain, it does not convey information, and it does not try to persuade. As stated earlier, it is simply a set, set of instructions. Even my wife, the English teacher, agrees that contract writing is a unique third form of writing and a unique and perhaps amusing feature about a well-written contract is that you can throw all the sections into the air and put them together in any order in which they come down. The contract will have the same meaning. The sections can be placed in any order and the contract, that is the instructions, will maintain the same meaning. You can't do that with creative or expository writing. If you did that with stanzas of a poem or chapters of a novel or the paragraphs of a brief, 
you'd end up with gobbledygook. Very true. And now if you don't mind, let's kind of switch gears just a little bit. And in transactional skills, you use a specific acronym, BLIP, when talking about negotiating. Can you expand on that a little bit for us, please? Sure. As noted earlier, finding solutions is an essential part of transactional lawyering. And finding solutions is what negotiating is all about. Skilled negotiators are, in essence, skilled mediators. The letters in the acronym stand for essential aspects of negotiating. And often in any negotiation, two or more of those letters will apply. By way of introduction, a good part of the art of negotiating is embodied in a stanza from the Kenny Rogers 1979 award-winning song, The Gambler, written by Don Schlitz. The stanza reads, you got to know when to hold them, know when to fold them, know when to walk away, and know when to run. Now to the acronym. B, the first letter, stands for belief, and in another way, bluff. You must convince the other party to believe that what you say, you mean, and that you are prepared to stand by that position, even though you may lose the deal. But this position must be taken only, only on matters of critical importance, a topic we'll address in a little while. A fundamental corollary to knowing when to hold them is knowing when to fold them. That is, knowing when to concede on a point. Knowing when to concede can be just as important as knowing when not to yield. Yielding is not losing when the person making the concession is not hurt and when the risk involved is minimal and can be contained. I was having lunch one day with my younger partner, Steve Brody, and his father-in-law, Arnold Hickox, one of the best known figures in the factoring world and president of Manufacture Hanover Trust Company's factoring division. Now, for those not familiar with the term, factoring is a form of accounts receivable financing in which the factor buys accounts receivable at a discount, sometimes with recourse against the seller if an account fails and sometimes without recourse. Of course, if the factor buys the accounts without recourse, the price will be less than a purchase with recourse against the seller for accounts that fail. And for those of you who are not like me, born when the Dead Sea was just beginning to feel ill, Manufacturers Hanover Trust Company was a major New York City bank that merged with Chemical Bank in 1991. Now, back to our story. The conversation turned to negotiating. And both Arnold and I emphasized how important it is during a negotiation to know when to yield. Apparently, that part of the conversation made an impression on Steve because years later, during his presentation on negotiating at a CLE program, recalling our luncheon, he emphasized that very point. You've got to know what points to give in on. Now, the letter B also stands for never bluff. If you get caught in a bluff, you lose credibility. And if you lose credibility, you lose respect and impair your ability to be convincing. Two qualities 
which are essential in any negotiation. Sure. L is the second letter in our acronym, and it stands for leverage. It is essential to know where the leverage lies, and if it lies with you, how to use it. For example, and this is an example of knowing when to yield, in a loan transaction, the lender holds all the cards before the loan is made. So when I represent a client borrowing money from a bank, I limit my attention to making sure the essential terms are correct. The amount of the borrowing, the borrower's right to draw the funds, interest rate, payment terms, and the right to prepay the loan, and making sure that the, that the default clauses, covenants, and warranties are reasonable. I will not, for example, negotiate grace periods for the last person that wants to call the loan is the bank. And keep in mind that for every hour spent in negotiating the loan, the borrower probably pays for two because the borrower usually pays the lender's legal fees. Now, before turning to our next uh, letter in the acronym, let me provide an example of using leverage to your advantage. An agitated CEO of one of our clients called at 10 a.m. On Friday, our subsidiary, he said, has a seismic system on lease to an outfit that's using it in the Persian Gulf, and the lessee is three months in arrears on the rent. They owe our sub about $600,000. What can we do, Peter? Well, I said, we could cancel the lease, but they just smile and keep on using the system. We could bring a lawsuit for its return but that will take time and be costly. We can turn off the unit, the CEO countered. Really? How? Was my, reply, was, was my surprised reply. Surprised indeed. <laughs> <laughs> Our technicians, he said, are operating it for them. The lessee's people have no idea how to use the system. Okay, I said, turn it off, but be sure your guys are in no danger if they do. A few minutes later, the CEO called back and said that the technicians were not concerned about turning it off. He also added that the lessee had posted a $2 million performance bond to complete the job. Sometimes things just break right for the good guys. Later that afternoon, after the unit had been turned off, the CEO called to tell me that an angry, agitated executive of the lessee called and offered $200,000 if we turn the unit back on. Ridiculous, I said. They owe your subs $600,000. They'll just continue to default when the next payment is due. Don't accept it. Uh, <laughs> okay, Peter, he said, you negotiate, but don't lose that $200,000. Our sub desperately needs that money. I won't lose it, I replied. Whom do I call and let the person know that I'll be calling? The conversations were not pleasant. Again, the lessee offered 200000 which, of course, I rejected. Look, came the response. If the job is canceled, we lose. Yes, you're right, I replied, but you'll lose more. All right, he asked, what do you want? What you owe us and the next month's rent. After a bit of squealing, the lessee agreed to pay that amount, about $800,000. I suggested to a happy client that the company pay the technicians as a bonus some money the sub saved 
in not having to bring a lawsuit. It's always wise to express proper attention, uh, proper appreciation, and the client did. That's a great story, Peter. Oh, yes, I, I enjoy it. <laughs> I, our next letter, stands for importance. It is essential that you understand what is important, not only to your client, but also to the other party. And it is important that you give to the other party as much as you can without harming your client. There's no shame in drafting a fair agreement. To conduct a negotiation effectively and successfully, the parties must focus their efforts on the important issues. And generally, there are only a few of these. For that reason, in any negotiation, I invoke the transactional attorney's prayer. Please, please let the smartest person in the world be on the other side of the table. I have never seen anyone gain any advantage negotiating against inexperience or stupidity. The inexperienced person tends to treat all points as having equal importance and has difficulty making a decision. The stupid person will freeze on a point, lacking the understanding and flexibility to find or contribute to a solution. Good negotiators determine from the outset what issues are important to their side and what issues are important to the other side. They then try to obtain as much as they can of those that are crucial to their client and try to accommodate the other side as much as possible. You know, Peter, you probably don't know this necessarily, but your note about recognizing who you're negotiating with and their level of knowledge about the transaction is something that really resonates with me. I actually recently sold my home and quite frankly, the process was quite a nightmare. Uh, the buyer was a first-time home buyer, which is fine, but they didn't know anything about the home buying process or what it means to own a home. And they were also surrounded by people who didn't seem to know what they were doing either. The realtor hired an inspector who actually broke things in my house and then placed them on the inspection report as something that needed to be fixed ahead of the sale. The realtor then wrote up a request based on the inspection, this flawed inspection, that incorporated elements that any person viewing the inspection report could see were just not true issues. So for example, we had just gotten the plumbing under the home redone in February of this year. One of the joints that was installed had some rust or dirt stains on it. The pipe leading into the joint and the pipe coming out of the joint had absolutely no discoloring. And the pipe wasn't even a water pipe, it was an air vent pipe. Yet the buyer, presumably through their realtor, demanded that we replace the joint because it was designated as leaking by this flawed inspection in the inspector's report. They went on to demand we fix it because one of the home's toilets was running and the running toilet meant that this air vent pipe that doesn't even carry water was also leaking. Obviously, this makes no sense on so many different levels and it really made this process extremely frustrating for me as the person selling the home. All this is to say that when you're spending time explaining the actual subject matter of an agreement, 
it just doesn't leave room for helpful negotiation. You can't negotiate with someone who doesn't know what they're discussing. And as you said, they stick to the point and think that this means that they're holding their position and taking a stand. And in fact, that this is evidence of being a good negotiator. But really, they're focusing on something that's irrelevant, and they're being ineffective and inefficient. Ultimately, we just replaced the joint because we couldn't get them to understand what was going on in real time. And essentially, it cost me less money to just replace the fixture, for which my plumber was really confused and thought I was out of my mind, uh, than to continue to fight with these people about how plumbing works and that the inspector was incompetent. In the end, it served no one. I lost money that was needlessly spent to replace this joint. Meanwhile, the buyer spent time and energy on trying to get something fixed that didn't need to be fixed in the first place. It's a lose-lose situation if I ever saw one. And let's just say this was not the only example from the process. This is just one of, unfortunately, many. But I think it really fits in well with what you're saying about having someone on the other side of the table. That story illuminates two points. Sometimes you just got to know when to give in, even if you're right. True. Uh, And the second, it certainly uh, underscores the transactional attorney's prayer. Now, the next letter uh, in our acronym, acronym P, stands for patience. Sitability is another word for this principle. Patience is most important in what are called chicken negotiations. These are negotiations which usually involve only one issue, and that issue is usually price. Each party has an acceptable figure in mind, and the trick is to get as close to your figure as you can. I hate this kind of negotiation because logical applications are of little help. Let me give you an example, which also features the letter B for belief. In this example, Silence created the belief. In a high-rise luxury condominium project, our client arranged the sale of three units to a single buyer. The negotiations in which I did not participate were long and difficult. But finally, one of the principals told me that they had reached agreement on the units and the price. The next day, the attorney for the buyer had a contract for the sale of the units on his desk. He called me that day or the next day, and said that everything was fine, except that instead of paying 100x for the units, his client wanted to pay 94x. And in addition, as a condition to completing the sale, his client wanted us to sell the three units for his client's account. I replied that the price of 100x was agreed, and we were not going to renegotiate. As far as selling the units for his client, That was out of the question. We would sell them for ourselves. After we hung up, I told the principals of the conversation. They agreed with me on the question of selling three units for the bar, but they also said that 94X was acceptable and we should take it. Recalling the line from the gambler about knowing when to hold them, I told the client, if you accept 94X, they'll sense weakness and probably go lower. And if you accept that lower figure, they may even try to push you further. Sometimes to get a deal, you have to be prepared to lose it. We heard nothing the next day. No communication from the buyer's lawyer on the second day. 
when one of the principals suggested that I call the lawyer for the buyer to find out what was going on, I declined, uttering some colorful expletives <laughs> that I learned as a kid on the streets of Brooklyn. On the morning of the third day, one of the principals called me and said, I guess we lost the deal, Peter. To which I replied, don't bet on it. That afternoon, the lawyer for the buyer called and said the buyer agreed to the original price and withdrew the requirement for the sale of the units. We simply outpatienced them. Well, Crystal, I hope that takes care of negotiating. What else can we discuss? Well, I want to tackle a common misconception about law school and practicing law. So one of the common misconceptions is that you automatically know what area you want to practice or what type of lawyer you want to be when you enter law school. But we know that that's not necessarily the case. And actually, when I went to law school and said I knew I wanted to practice immigration, most of my professors were like, oh, that'll probably change. It didn't in my case, but it did change for a lot of my classmates. So if you could share what you like and dislike about being a transactional lawyer, I think that would be helpful to people interested in this type of practice as they figure this sort of component out during their law school journey. Well, finding solutions to difficult problems provides a great deal of satisfaction. Twice, L'Oreal asked me to step in when their major international firm couldn't close a deal. After understanding the problems, I was able to resolve both very quickly. L'Oreal told me to charge whatever I wanted. That meant more to me than the few bucks I added to my time charges. And let me add that in one of those situations, the transactional lawyer's prayer was answered. The uh, person handling the deal for the other party was really extremely smart. And we were mm. e able easily, in, less, in, in one meeting, in less than two hours, to find a solution to the problems that were keeping the deal from closing. On another occasion, the large publicly held Japanese conglomerate, Marobini, asked me to help on a deal they had been working on for six months, but come, couldn't come to agreement on the contracts. I sat both parties around a table for two weeks, going through the contracts, section by section. At the end of the two weeks, they had their deal. If you're not good in math, but like to solve problems, consider the field of transactional lawyering. Now, also, identifying the considerations in each transaction, determining how to deal with them, and then the discipline of executing the prime directive will sharpen the mind, will make you a smarter person, and will also improve your expository writing. Also, you work with very smart people, especially the entrepreneurs, and you often build long-standing relationships and friendships with your clients. On the other hand, litigation is often an isolated experience with the client. What was unpleasant at times was having to deal with arrogance and bullies. You must never let another lawyer bully you. For example, our client had arranged a syndicate of lenders to finance a management takeover 
of a public company. At the opening of the first meeting, the attorney for the management committee, a high profile New York real estate lawyer, handed me an agreement saying that he wanted it signed that afternoon. I literally threw the agreement back to him, saying that we weren't going to sign anything that day. And if we did sign anything, I would write it immediately. His client told him to back off. Lenders always control the drafting. Not only must you never let anyone bully you, but you must never present a document to anyone at a meeting and ask the person to review and comment on that document at that meeting. It's just not fair and it's just not right. In my opinion, Peter, I think that rule applies to all lawyering. So one of my biggest pet peeves as a litigator was when opposing counsel would drop something on me the day of a hearing, knowing full well that a judge would be hard pressed to reset the case due to docket size and judicial efficiency. One piece of advice I received as a new attorney from a practitioner I really respected is the most valuable thing you have is your reputation. And trust me, it follows you everywhere. It's completely true. If you start pulling that last minute document stuff on other attorneys, everyone will know and they will know quickly. People will be reluctant to work with you or to recommend you, all of which can harm your practice. Based on the functions of a transactional lawyer that we've discussed so far, okay, what skills would you say are required to be a good transactional lawyer with a solid reputation? The ability to think clearly and write well is essential. As an incentive, just remember that your writing is your mind walking naked across the page. To write well, you must be viciously self-critical. Imagination, flexibility, and the ability to think outside traditional parameters are also important qualities to possess as a transactional lawyer. With regard to negotiating, the ability to read is crucial. Not reading books or essays or people, but reading situations. It is not unlike quarterbacks learning to read defenses and great running backs who grasp the entire flow of the defense and their offensive line and know when to break or slow down, to cut and to accelerate. All this will come with experience. I'll give you an example. During construction of a business in Manhattan, our client, the developers, determined that it was important to have the concrete work done ahead of schedule. They told me that the contractor would agree to complete the work by the desired date, but wanted a bonus specifying the amount. I asked whether the amount requested was satisfactory. Yes, they said. So I suggested that they agree to the amount but insist that the work be completed by the required date without regard to force majeure. That is, regardless of strikes, weather, and other, other events or circumstances that might delay the work. The contractor was happy that we accepted his figure, but insisted on extending the completion date because of delays due to force majeure. We explained that if the work was not done by the required date, regardless of the reason, we would gain no benefit. That is why we accepted his bonus figure, but we could not agree to delays because of force majeure. The contractor, though, refused to yield. 
And late one Friday afternoon, the principals called to tell me that the contractor threatened to walk off the job the next day, a Saturday, unless we agree to the force majeure clause. At that time, we owe the contractor a substantial sum. He's bluffing, I said. Ah, there's that no-no word again. But Peter, they said, if you're wrong, we'll lose thousands of dollars a day. I'm not wrong, I insisted. The guy is bluffing. We argued for a long time. And I explained that we owed the contractor a substantial sum, which he'd never see. Plus, he knew that he had no basis to walk off the job and that he would be in breach of the contract and would be liable for substantial damages. And further, and more importantly, he would also be discredited in the industry for pulling such a stunt. Eventually and reluctantly, they agreed to follow my advice. My wife tells me that I didn't sleep much that night, but at 10.30 Saturday morning, one of the developers called to tell me that the contractor was on the job with a full crew. We never did sign an agreement to accelerate the work. Nevertheless, the contractor completed the work by the date we had set, and we paid him the bonus he had requested. You really do have the best insights and stories, Peter. Thank you for sharing them. And so finally, any words of wisdom for the aspiring transactional attorney from all of your experiences that you've shared here today? Yes, I'll be happy to. First and most important, importantly, is IRQ. I-R-Q. Integrity, reliability, and quality of performance. These traits are essential to success because they engender trust. And trust is the mortar that binds clients to their lawyers. Also, develop self-confidence, void of arrogance, and respond promptly to emails and other communications, even if it's just to say noted, or noted will consider and reply. Our grandson's fiance, a student at Duke Law School, did not reply to emails. I told her that she had to change and reply promptly to all emails. She did. And one of her professors complimented her on her responses, emphasizing the importance in business of responding promptly. Further, do not shrink from or fear disagreeing with your client. Also, Resist time of the essence warnings from your client. In nearly 60 years of practice, I have never seen time of the essence being critical to any deal. I will just give you one more example. After the initial meeting with the management committee in August for the financing to take private, the publicly held company that I mentioned earlier, my client asked when I thought the deal would close. Well, Around next August, I replied. Impossible, he exclaimed. I'll lose the syndicate if we don't close by December. It won't close by December, I counted. There'll be litigation, which will take time, but management will settle it. Well, in spite of Yoda's sage advice, difficult to see, always in motion is the future, the deal actually closed the following August. And our client, did not lose its syndicate. Also, have handy at all times a good dictionary, 
a good grammar book, and transactional skills. After graduating from law school, I suggest commercial agreements published by Thomson Reuters. It provides adaptable models coupled with extensive commentary of agreements for most commercial transactions. These models are more comprehensive and more flexible than anything you'll find on the internet. It will be a long, long time before the silicon chip can outthink the carbon-based unit. <laughs> and with that last comment, I think I better close. Crystal, thanks. And I hope the listeners find this program useful and enjoyable. I am available without charge to anyone who has comments or wishes to discuss any matter. My phone number is 914-366-7877. And my email is psevilia at aol.com. Sevilia is spelled S-I-V-I-G-L-I-A. I loved that Italian pronunciation there. <laughs> <laughs> I do speak a little Italian myself, but thank you so much for joining us today, Peter. This has been an incredibly enlightening conversation and everyone should grab a copy of your book if they're looking to be a transactional lawyer or if they're engaging in this type of practice to gain your experience and your insights. So thank you so much for sharing them both in your book and here with us today. Oh, you're more than welcome. It was fun. Very fun. I enjoyed having you here. And that closes out another incredible discussion here at the Law School Lounge. Thank you to Peter for joining me for this discussion on transactional lawyering. I hope that you took as much away from this conversation as I did in regards to the wonderful examples, the real life tips that Peter was able to provide in this type of practice. Thanks again for listening. Please be sure to check out Peter's books with us at Carolina Academic Press. And if you're not already doing so, be sure to give us a follow on Instagram and Twitter or X at Law School Lounge. We'll catch you next time.